0: This morning, we're going to begin a new series that I told you about at the beginning of the year, looking at the the book of Nehemiah. I'm really excited about what uh, God might have in store for us. And as we begin, I I want to make sure that we put this uh, book in, in its historical context. Because chronologically, if you were to line up the books of the Old Testament, Nehemiah would be at the very end. It's not where you're going to find it in, the, in your Bible. It's kind of in the middle of your Old Testament, isn't it? But chronologically speaking, Nehemiah is recording the, the very last events of the nation of Israel before that 400-year period of silence immediately preceding the birth of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah is one of the many Jews who were born during the captivity of Babylon which is significant when you look and and see as we go through this book together what a great love nehemiah has for israel and his commitment to rebuild jerusalem it's important for us to to understand that nehemiah is deeply committed to a place that he's never been he was born in babylon but he's deeply committed to Jerusalem. That's where his heart is. So even though Nehemiah's heart is in Jerusalem, he and a number of other Jews are in Babylon. And I want you to understand how they got there. You'll remember that after King Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. That northern kingdom existed for about 200 years before A large empire of the Assyrians came in and took control of that northern kingdom and took those people captive. One of the things important to know about that is that those people never maintained the solidarity. They were spread throughout the then-known world. It never came back together as a people. Now the southern kingdom existed for some time longer, but that kingdom really only had two small tribes. One was Judah. One was Benjamin and there were a few of the Levites that were spread throughout Israel that were there as well, but they remained intact for some time until the empire of Babylon began to take over. And when that happened, Babylon came in, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and took those people into captivity back in their land of Babylon. And so Nehemiah is with that group of people who has been held captive. And unlike the northern kingdom... This southern kingdom remained intact as a people. Now, Jerusalem, as I said, has been destroyed. The temple has been annihilated. Really, most everything that existed in that area was no more. And so even if these people wanted to go back to their homeland, there really wasn't anything for them to go back to. As far as they knew, they would be forever held captive under the rule of a foreign power in a land that was not their own. Which is why, if you were to look at the book of Lamentations, you would see this outcry of their despair. It was written during that time. And as you read it, you get a sense of this helpless, hopeless condition that they felt that they were in. In fact, let me just show you that. Turn to Lamentations. Just chapter 1, I want to show you a couple of things to give you a heart of what's going on within The people during this time. Lamentations chapter 1. You'll have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, so it follows there, and you'll read along with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations, she was a princess among the provinces. Has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her, they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. So, what Jeremiah is describing here is the reality of their conditions. That city that they're talking about is Jerusalem. That people is Judah and and Benjamin, now in captivity in Babylon. But even within that despair, there was always a remnant of hope. And I want you to see that. Turn to chapter 3 of Lamentations. Chapter 3. So despite that difficult and sometimes hopeless uh, situation, The people knew what God's Word said. And so look at what they continue to turn to. It says in verse 21 of chapter 3, Then I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Here's why. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope, not in my circumstances, but in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for them, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. See, this was a people who knew that they had not been faithful to God, which is why they were in the situation they were in. But in the midst of that, in in their acknowledgement that they had not been faithful to God, they knew that God would be faithful to them. They believed that God would be faithful to those who wait on Him, who turn to Him for deliverance. I want to just pause there for just a second because I think it's important to put ourselves in this story and ask ourselves how many times maybe even now have you been in a situation that you felt was hopeless that you were completely helpless and even though you were in a place maybe by your own decisions you are bearing the consequences and and so you think i've not been faithful but here's the hope god is His mercies are new every morning. And if you will turn your hearts towards Him, if you will wait on Him, that's where you find your salvation. Because even though we're not faithful, praise God, He is. That's where these people find themselves. And so after 70 years of this captivity, they begin to see the possibility that that hope that they're holding to may be realized. You see, a new world power has now come on to the scene. And that would eventually become what was was known as the Persian Empire. And there was a man by the name of King Cyrus who who led that charge. He would eventually uh, establish his dominion over that then known world. And, And part of what Cyrus did was He sent out a decree to all the people who were then held in captivity and told them that they are able to go free. That they could return to their homeland. In fact, they could live within some kind of local autonomy, both in both religion and, 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 and legal affairs. This was an unprecedented decision, but that decree went out to all the land. And because the Jews were hoping for God's rescue, they begin to see how this might be, how how God would sovereignly work circumstances to to give them another chance. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone, after having received this news, packed up their bags and headed for Jerusalem. (laughs) And we need to consider why not. They'd been set free, right? Why wouldn't they? Well, one of the reasons is Babylon's a long way from Jerusalem. And that is a very hard and dangerous and difficult trip to take. And so many of them looked at their current circumstances as bad as they were and said, I don't think I want to leave. This has become my home. In other words, their comfort became more important than God's calling. I think there are things in our lives sometimes that we get too comfortable with too, right? And sometimes we look at our circumstances and say, man, it's going to be a whole lot harder to get out of this mess, so I might as well just learn to live in it. And that's where these people find themselves. But over time, they begin to realize that what God has promised is so much better than what they currently have. And so a remnant of people begins to, to move out of Babylon and take that step of faith to journey towards Jerusalem. Because experiencing God's promise of deliverance always begins with a step of faith. And that's what these people began to do. They began to make their way back to Jerusalem. That first group was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Uh, he took a small remnant of Jews, and when they finally arrive in Jerusalem, one of the things that's very interesting about this first group who gets to that promised land is the very first thing they do is they rebuild the temple. That's their first order of business. And so I want us to think about why, why that would be such a, a high priority for them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to do once they get back to that land that had been destroyed, but what do they do? They, they build the temple. Here's why I believe they did this. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. See, these were people who remained intact, who were knowledgeable of what God's Word had to say, and this is what I believe they understood. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 says this, "...now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I commanded you today, the Lord Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city and blessed you shall be in the country. Now go down to verse 15. But it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all the commandments and his statutes which he which I charge you today that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you cursed shall you be in the city cursed shall you be in the country now flip over to verse 41 this is the one I think that hits close to home he says you shall have sons and daughters that shall not be yours for they shall go into captivity that's their story and they knew that that was true and so they rebuilt the temple because they knew that they were a people under god's judgment and they needed to in first order of business do something that would allow them to atone for their sins so they rebuilt the temple But sadly, they were depending on a religious system without ever really doing business with their own hearts. They were trying to appease God through religious devotion, but then went on with their lives to, to live according to their own desires. You see, the evidence of faith is always a life of obedience, and that's not what you see happening among these people. In fact... Just about a hundred years later, Ezra shows up with another group from Babylon. And when he does, he sees that original group that had arrived first in a terrible place of spiritual and moral decay. What a sad reality that even exists today. That God is so faithful to redeem us, and yet we're so prone to fall away, aren't we? But remember, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness, even when we're not. He's always committed to bringing redemption to those who are repentant before him. So Ezra begins to teach God's word in order to deal with their heart and a revival. A spiritual revival begins to take place in the land. And this is the setting in which Nehemiah now enters the scene. Now, before we look at that detail, I want you to hear very clearly that Nehemiah is not the central character of our study. The book of Nehemiah is a book about God. This is a book about His faithfulness among His people when they turn to Him in faith. It's a book that should relate directly to us because we stand in that same line of faith with the people who have preceded us. God rescues us just like He rescued them. God forgives us just like He forgave them. We are just as prone to fall in the trap of thinking that religious devotion somehow appeases our relationship with God. and We need God's Word to shed light on our sin and reveal to us what is true so that our hearts are clean before Him. You see, I believe we today, 2014, Lubbock, Texas, are just as much in need of a spiritual revival, is the people in the days of Nehemiah. And it begins in one place, and that's our heart. Because unless that's changed, nothing else can happen. So turn, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 1, and let's begin to look at this together. Nehemiah chapter 1. Switching Bibles, I like this one better. I forgot to tell you, I stole this off your desk this morning, sorry. <coughs> Nehemiah chapter 1, it's the same New American Standard, but it takes out some of the these and thous, and it's a little easier to read. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, listen to what it says. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and I asked them concerning the Jews who has escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now let me stop here and just tell you that the details here are significant because they give us precisely the timing of of what is happening. It's in the winter months of uh, the year 444 B.C. It's in the city of Susa where... Nehemiah has a conversation with his brother Hanani and others who have been in the land of Judah. These are people who would be able to give them a first-hand account of what has happened to those who have returned to Jerusalem. And just the fact that Nehemiah cares enough to ask the question tells us something about where his heart is what he thinks about God's people and those who have gone to Jerusalem. Because as we'll learn, Nehemiah has a very high position of authority in Babylon. But yet, this has not caused him to be disconnected from the people and the place that he knows he belongs to. He wanted to know because that's where his heart is. Look at the answer that he receives in verse 3. It says, They said to me, The remnant there is in the province who survived the captivity. They're in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. These men tell Nehemiah that the the remnant who is in Jerusalem is in great distress and reproach. If we go and look at the book of Ezra, which immediately immediately precedes this, we can find out exactly what they told him. So let's do that. Turn to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, verse 11. Here's what's happening that these men are referring to. It says, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him, speaking of the king. What's happening here is they are not welcomed back into what was their homeland. There are people who have occupied that land since they've been gone, and they don't want them back. And so what they're going to do is create some charges against them and send a letter to the king so that he will do something to to stop their progress. And this is what they do. This is the letter to the king Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river. And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute custom or toll and it will damage the revenue of the kings boy if you want to get somebody upset start talking about their pocketbook right and this is what they're doing they're saying these guys are up to no good they're exaggerating the progress that's being made but they're trying to build the case that you've got to stop them because they're 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 going to be a rebellious people well if you go down to verse 17 it says then the king sent an answer to raim this is the answer to that letter being sent to them to the commander to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against the kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt has been uh, perpetuated in it. The mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the princes' provinces beyond the river. And that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now, issue a decree to make these men stop work that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Now watch what happens here in verse 22. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase? To the detriment of the kings, now verse 23, then as soon as the copy of the art of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Ram and Shemshai, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. You see, the remnant in Jerusalem is in great distress because those in the land who don't want them there are building. A false case against them. It's a ploy to prevent them from making progress by disrupting the news about what's happening and to defile their character. They're telling them that if you let these people continue, they're going to be a problem for you in the future. Not only that, these Samaritan accusers exaggerate what actually is going to take place. Remember, this is a small remnant of Jews who are in Jerusalem. But if you look at verse 16, he makes the claim in that letter sent to the king that they intend to take possession of the province beyond the river. They're talking about the river Euphrates. They're basically going to take over the whole land of the Middle East with a handful of people. It's crazy. But the king believes it's true. So he responds with the decree to stop the work in Jerusalem. But I want you to notice what happens in verse 23. The adversaries who don't want them there carry out this decree with a force of arms. This is a military takeover. Now, Nehemiah, I believe, because of his close association with the king, knew what the original decree was. And he knew that it did not make the request of the use of military force. Perhaps the reason that Nehemiah stops when he hears this news and he weeps and begins to pray is because he knows that the people who had just been freed from captivity would now be made slaves under military forces. and Some of those people were his own family. Overwhelmed by the news. Nehemiah begins what we later learn is a four-month period of prayer and fasting. And we see what that prayer is beginning in verse 5. Look at that with me. So in response to that news, this is what Nehemiah says. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. I want to pause here because it's very important to recognize that Nehemiah begins his prayer with a heart of adoration. Because unless you believe that the God you are praying to is big enough to do something about it, then there's no reason to pray in the first place. And so he begins with his adoration of what he calls... The great and awesome God, the Lord of the heavens. It's the recognition that, that God is great, that inspires this sense of awe in the heart of Nehemiah. It's a heart of wondrous respect. It's that same heart that I know we've all felt when we experience something that that really kind of takes our breath away that causes our heart to skip a beat or two. I know I experienced that on my wedding day when I saw my bride walk down that aisle. If you listen to our tape of our wedding, you're going to hear this. You hear it on the recording because I'm catching my breath when I see her come. I had a similar experience uh, this past year when we were in Huachochi, New Mexico. And a group of us walked out on this platform looking down into the Copper Canyon, which is their version of the Grand Canyon, except it's deeper. And it is breathtakingly beautiful. It's just a sense of awe that you look at this and just go, that's amazing. I believe when Nehemiah goes before God, that's his heart. The great and awesome God It was breathtaking to him to be in that presence. Not just because of his power, but because of his promise. This is a God who he recognizes as a God who who keeps his covenant. He is a God of steadfast love. Nehemiah actually uses a word here that I want to teach you. It's a Hebrew word. It's called hesed. Okay, You kind of got to say it like you're trying to get something out of your throat. right? Everybody say that with me. Hesed. Now you know how to speak Hebrew. Isn't that great? But that's an important word. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. And he uses it here because he's describing what literally is God's loyal love. Hesed is a word to describe God's covenant love. So that we can pray to this awesome God who is faithful even when we are not. It's God's loyal love that is the basis of every single prayer. And in the presence of God's goodness, and God's loyal love, Nehemiah comes to recognize the reality of his own sin. Look at verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. His adoration is followed by confession. Notice the pronouns that he uses in this part of his prayer. He is confessing the sins. We have sinned against you. I and my Father have sinned against you. He's not looking back at Jerusalem and that rebellion of that, that, that people that caused them to be put into captivity. And he's saying, it's their fault. They're the reason that we're in the shape we're in right now. That's not what he's saying. He's confessing that he is just, that He is just as much to blame as they are. He doesn't separate Himself from the sins of His people. In fact, He identifies Himself with the sins of His people. Because He knows that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. He uses a word in verse 7 that's translated acting corruptly. It literally means to offend. His point is that we are all guilty of making decisions that are different than what God desires. And it's an offense to God when we don't trust Him enough to do what He says. We don't believe in that loyal love. We act corruptly when we willingly choose not to obey and we are all guilty of that sin. And Nehemiah knows that truth. You see, confession is what reminds us that our prayers are always answered because of God's grace and not because we come to Him in a place where we deserve something from Him. Adoration is followed by confession. And then we get the request. Look at verse 8. Here's the request. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. That's Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. If you look closely at these verses, you'll notice that the heart of Nehemiah's prayer is a reflection of God's revealed Word. In other words, Nehemiah is using the Bible to ensure that what he is asking is something that God has already promised that he would do. He could ask for God's deliverance because God had already said that he would do that. That's why he says in verse 9 that God says, If you return to Me and keep My commandments, even though you've been scattered, I will bring you to the place that I've chosen for My name to dwell. That's Jerusalem. Nehemiah is quoting Scripture as the basis of his prayer. And Then in verse 10, Nehemiah recalls the history of God's redemption. Notice the tense here. He says, These are a people you have redeemed. He's looking back to see of God's past provision as the basis for His future hope. His prayer is consistent with God's Word. It, it's a reflection of God's heart whose loyal love has always delighted in the redemption of a people who turned to Him in faith. Because as we see in verse 11, Nehemiah knows unless God comes through, he doesn't have a chance. Notice that he, how he refers to the king. When he says, this man, he's talking about the king of Persia, his boss, the one who made the decree to stop the work back in Jerusalem. That's this man. And yet God has put Nehemiah in the very position as the cupbearer to that king, to have direct access in order to make this request. Seeing these things as Nehemiah prays during that period of time, he begins to realize who is sovereignly in control, and it's not the king of Persia. Now, I don't know that this is the case, but let me share a little reflection that I had on this prayer this week as I prepared I know from what we learn in chapter 2, verse 1, that Nehemiah prayed over a four-month period of time. And so it's my conviction that the prayer that we read in our passage this morning is not the prayer that he started with. I believe what we read in our passage is what developed over that four-month period of time. Because I think very possibly when he first received that news, from his brother and those people who had come with him from the land of Jerusalem, that he wept and cried out to God with with no details, no clear direction, but just simple request of saying, God, they need you. And then I have to believe at that point, he began to to look at God's Word as he continued in a heart of prayer. And the more exalted God became, In his heart and in his mind, the more obvious his own sin was revealed in his life. And now the pronouns changed. Instead of, Lord, they need you, he became a part of his own prayer. Lord, we need you. And as he continued to pray, he began to to go to God's Word where his promise was revealed. And that eventually became the heart of God of Nehemiah's prayer. If you look at what he says, he says, Remember the word you spoke to Moses when you promised to redeem those who put their trust in you. See, I believe that over that four-month period of time, God shaped Nehemiah's prayer to conform to His will. To the point that Nehemiah realizes He's the answer to his prayer. Lord, grant me compassion as I go before the King. A few weeks ago, I shared a story in the bulletin that I hope you had a chance to read. I'm glad to see Chuck and Amy here this morning. Chuck and Amy Eaton were in a difficult situation with Chuck's sister, Shara. Her life was literally unraveling at the scene physically, spiritually, emotionally. And that situation had become a burden for them and their family. And it was a very consistent prayer request in their small group. And they prayed for it month after month. Until one day, Chuck asked Amy, are we supposed to bring Shara to Lubbock to be with us? Are we the answer to our prayer? Now, you need to understand that to make that decision was no small leap of faith, right? To bring her here would be like bringing the responsibility of caring for a young child because she was in such a condition that they would have to to care for her daily needs in many ways. And there was probably some bitterness built up because of what this has done to their family, but they were convinced that... This is what God had called them to do. And over that period of time that they prayed and invited the small group to pray with them, they realized that, that God had shaped their heart to conform their prayer to His will to the point that they realized they are the answer to their prayer. Now you need to ask them about what happened. Because it is nothing short of a miracle. It is a beautiful story of God's redemptive work in physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing. See, they didn't know that Shara wasn't going to live too much longer after she came here. But what took place in the relationship between her and that family is beyond imagination. And it began with a step of faith. See, that's the power of Prayer. The, ch- the power to, t- to change our heart, the person who's doing the praying, to be in alignment with God's will to the point that we are willing to become the answer to our very own prayer. There's a great new song out by Matthew West. You've probably heard it. As he begins this song, talking about all the problems that exist in the world and eventually coming to the point where he asks God, why won't you do something about it? And God answers and said, I have. I created you. Doug Livingston said last week that God has one plan. Plan A. There is no plan B. To bring redemptive news to the world. And that plan, if you are a child of God, includes you. You are the answer to that prayer. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. We as a church, you as a people, are a city on a hill. God's people are God's answer to what's wrong in our world. And we are in desperate need of a spiritual awakening. And we need to understand that for that prayer to be answered, it has to begin right here in our own heart. Because... God's work in our heart always precedes His work in this world. and So I think we just need to probably take some time to ask ourselves this morning, where's God uniquely placed you, like He did with Nehemiah, to have a a platform, a place of influence for the good news of salvation in Christ alone? Where's He placed you? And are you the answer to that prayer of redemption? Or where does He want you to go? That was a great message for us to hear last week when, when Doug recognized, hey, y'all have a great history of missionaries being sent out from your church. Look at those people on the wall. It, Todd Knapp asked me after the missions banquet on Friday night, how many of those people came from Melanie Park? I said every one of them did. But Doug recognized they're all older than he is or I am. Where's that next generation? Where is he calling you to go? Because here's the reality. Sometimes we get really comfortable in where we're at. And sometimes those are messy places. Sometimes we are truly enslaved by issues of sin and, and the difficulty of getting out of that mess is... Much harder than it is just to find out how to live within it. But the promise of God is that His mercies are new every morning. And it's never too late to do the right thing. And God's redemptive work always begins with a small, single step of faith. Where you turn to that great and awesome God. And you say, I need you. See, I'm convinced, and I've been there as recent as this week, that that place of desperation is not a bad place to be. Because that's the place where we say, I got nothing. You've got to do something that I can't possibly do on my own. Will you save me? When our heart is humble and repentant before the Lord, I can assure you, based on the testimony of Scripture, that God's loyal love answer is always yes. So where has he placed you? Where does he want you to go? Do you need to take a step of faith? I think we probably all do. Let's pray together. Lord, I am so thankful that you are faithful even when we are not. And no matter how desperate or disgusting our circumstances may become, it's never a place that we can find ourselves where you will not be near enough to hear our cry of surrender. Asking you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, I believe that we are just as much in need of a spiritual awakening today as Nehemiah and his people were back then. And I am convinced that it has to begin with what happens in the hearts of your people, in your church, individually, so that we then collectively come together under one purpose, with one mind, to fulfill what you've called us to do and be about. I pray that we look around us to see where you've placed us and maybe we're in a position of influence that needs to be leveraged for your work in this world. Maybe we're in a place where we're just too comfortable and we need to go from where we're at to the place that you're calling us to, to be. Father, I pray that we would be a people this morning who would not leave without a heartfelt commitment to take a step of faith to trust your loyal love. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for your love demonstrated for us on the cross. And may we express our faith in a life of obedience and gratitude for that great love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.